No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome to Talking Bass in PDX as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark and I'll be your host. I'd like to welcome everybody aboard as we get underway. I have three very special guests on this episode, but before we talk to them, let me talk to you about Talking Bass and PDX. The podcast is all about fishing in the Northwest, and if you enjoy listening, help us grow by telling your friends about the podcast and where we can be heard on Spotify, Anchor FM, and iTunes. On this episode of Talking Bass and PDX, I will host Carol Dumit, Lonnie Johnson, and Bud Hartman as we talk about the perception of bass and warm water fishing in the Northwest. I get some very nice emails thanking me or saying how much you've enjoyed the show. Here's a shameless plug, though. Don't stop the emails at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. And I can't think of anything else I'd rather do than talk about fishing or go fishing, but maybe not in that order. But I've had the other emails, and I've had folks ask, why are warm water fish perceived to be bad for Oregon fisheries? You know, I've watched the regulations like many of us do, and I've seen them change over the years. And I'm not going to do what I see a lot of people do, and that's go down to Salem and protest my cause. I'm going to research the topic, and then I invited folks onto the podcast to give me their opinions. I want to give you the best information that I can find on the subject. If you want to comment on the show, email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. I may even put you on the show. My hope is that you listen to the episode and you ask yourself this question. How can I be a better steward to the fisheries in the Northwest? And I'm talking about all the fisheries. I researched this question for myself, and I found that being a good steward of anything you believe in can take many forms, but actions are like a picture. They speak a thousand words. For me, working on warm water projects doesn't take away from my fishing time. It just adds to the fun. But I wanted to put into words my thoughts on fishing, and I found this quote by Lee Wolf. He was a New York-based fly angler. He was an author. He was a filmmaker. And he promoted catch and release as early as 1936 with this phrase, game fish are too valuable to be caught just once. Think that one through for just a minute. Game fish are too valuable to be caught just once. Well, let's get this uh, show underway. As as we get started, I have Carol Dumit. Carol is a longtime member of the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club. Carol also represents the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club as a warm water champion. And now Carol. And on my podcast today is uh, Carol Dumit. Welcome, Carol, to the podcast. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm a native Oregonian and an angler, a warm water fisherman. Um, I belong to the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club and have for many, many years, and also the Warm Water Champions. And Carol, tell me a little bit about what is the Warm Water Champions? The Warm Water Champions is a group, an association of uh, fishing groups 
throughout the state of Oregon. So bass groups, walleye groups, um, bass and panfish groups. We advocate for warm water fish throughout the state of Oregon. That means um, we are able to represent these different groups with when we go to talk to Oregon uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife. It gives us a little more clout because we have groups of anglers behind us. And Carol, why do you think that warm water fish are bad for the state of Oregon? Oh my gosh, warm water fish are bad for the state of Oregon? Not, not at all. Um, I think our concern about warm water fish in the state of Oregon is these warm water fish are going to be Oregon's fishing future. If you, if pe- you believe in um, climate change, as many people do, and of course there are changes in our environment just by cyclical changes, we are going to have warmer waters for a number of years, and with that, the fish that are going to be surviving and doing the best are going to be the warm water species. And I believe they have been neglected. And these are fish that are not just bass. They are uh, all of the panfish. And as a member of the Warm Water Champions, what's the current situation with your partnership, your group's partnership, with the Department of Fish and Wildlife? Well, we do try to work very closely with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. We did take a very strong stand along with our Oregon Bass and Panfish Club group when the decision was made to take the limits off of bass and uh, walleye and catfish. And by taking the limits off of bass, catfish, and walleye uh, in some of the bodies of water in the state of Oregon, what has resulted is um, over-harvesting or Um, harvesting of uh, all of the large fish and small fish. Um, We see people catching very, very small fish, um, just taking everything they can catch because they can. Um, They're not thinking about a resource that needs to be sustained. I would like to thank Carol for her comments. So as we go on looking at bass fishing and the perception of bass fishing in Oregon, I want to bring on Lonnie Johnson. And Lonnie started the Black Bass Action Committee down in Southern Oregon. Lonnie is also the conservation director for BASS, and he's also a warm water champion. So although this is a casual conversation, uh, Lonnie does answer the questions of warm water fish, and what they mean to him. And now Lonnie Johnson. On today's podcast, we have Lonnie Johnson. And Lonnie, I'll just go ahead and kind of hand this off to you so that you can give me an introduction and a title of all of the things that you're involved with. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I'm, uh, I live in Grants Pass, Oregon um, with my wife. And uh, three kids, they're spread all over the country, four grandkids, um, and I've been fishing most of my life. I grew up in Guam, uh, fishing for the little fish around the, the dock posts and went into uh, 
trolling with my dad on his, on his sport boat. Um, and when I got out here, I got into all kinds of fishing again, but I finally settled on, on fishing for warm water fish, primarily bass. Uh, so I bought my first bass boat because of my oldest son. He was 14 years old, and I felt like I was losing that fatherly son touch that uh, I find very important. And so I bought a bass boat, and uh, it worked beyond my wildest dreams. To this day, I can call and say, hey, David, let's go fishing. He'll say, where and when? So uh, it made a connection that I didn't expect. However, um, moving beyond that, uh, I was in a couple of bass clubs down in Southern Oregon. I uh, was president of one of them, Southern Oregon Bass Club, and uh, helped a group start uh, another one uh, called Crater Bass, who focuses primarily on uh, getting younger folks in, involved in fishing. Um, and I, that was truly a good project. But then, uh, because of some issues uh, with that I was becoming aware of in bass, uh, a group of us got together and formed the Oregon Black Bass Action Committee. And uh, that's somewhat dwindled, but is still a, a very val valuable um, asset down there. Uh, we have uh, one tournament we hold a year to, to uh, uh, fund uh, the group, but we pay back 105% of their entry fees. So we don't do it to make money. We do it so guys can have fun. And we do it the first Saturday after Labor Day, uh, and uh, we really have a good time. Uh, and since then, uh, a good friend of mine, um, Chuck Wang, who was from over it in, uh, on the east side, uh, was the conservation director for Oregon BASS Nation. And uh, he wanted to become a, a snowbird. So uh, his boss said, uh, well, who would you replace? He says, there's only one. Get hold of Lonnie because I'd gotten involved with the Warm Water Working Group at ODFW, and we saw eye to eye on a lot of things. A lot of the projects I do now, uh, I picked up from him uh, and brought him down south. And he's even come down to us to help us with projects, which is a kind of a fun thing. Uh, so I've been uh, the conservation director for, for Oregon BASS now for, for several years. Uh, it's a great group of guys. I don't do much of the, the tournament fishing anymore, but I'm still very involved in, in uh, some of the projects we do down there. We do uh, willow plantings and uh, spider blocks, and we do a transfer from Davis Lake over on the east side every year. Uh, and it really helps the fishery. Lost Creek Lake was um, mostly considered the Dead Sea by the bass anglers because they just couldn't catch bass in there anymore. But now there's several tournaments a year because they come back and go fishing because there's fish to catch. And I find it so interesting, not only the passion that you bring to fishing, but the passion that you bring to bass fishing. And that's exactly why I brought you on the podcast, because as I have started this podcast, to be honest, I thought that I was going to be talking about tackle and techniques and where to go. And no matter what, you've got to talk about our stewardship of our fishery. And one of the things that I'd like to ask is, you know, why are warm water fishermen perceived as bad to Oregon and to others? 
Actually, that's a really good question, uh, Don. It, um, it's not, we're not bad. Um, they just feel like um, we're treated like the redheaded stepchild because we're, uh, we're a little bit different. We're more proactive. Uh, there's not there, uh, that many places to fish for bass, but there's supposedly all kinds of places to fish for salmon, trout, and steelhead, and that's where the focus is. There are a couple of organizations here in the state, uh, Native Fish Society comes to mind, where if all the bass left, they'd be fine with that. And uh, I have a problem with that. Uh, there's room for everybody. I mean, if any other thing, there is, there is room for everybody, but there doesn't seem to be that case in, in warm water. Uh, and for us, warm water isn't necessarily just bass. There's crappie and bluegill and, and catfish and um, any number of, of smaller fish. And I just happen to like uh, bass, either largemouth, smallmouth, and nowadays even some cases of spotted bass. Um, it's just fun. It's more proactive than sitting on the, on the beach, you know, let your line dangle in the water for a couple of hours and you might get a hit, you may not. I'm bass fishing. If I go to a spot and there's no bass, I move to another spot, and eventually I'm going to find them. Yeah, and it's active fishing. And I and I, as we were talking just before we started the podcast, I like active fishing. I like moving. I don't like just sitting there dangling the line off of the uh, off the end of the boat or the end of the dock. Um, but as a political liaison. How have you kept the lines open in Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife? And what's the current situation with our partnership? Because a lot of people want to know that. They ask me a lot. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's tenuous at best. Um, I have a very, very good relationship with, with the, the warm water biologist and his assistant, uh, who is actually employed uh, through uh, volunteer hours that pay for his time. Um, and they're both good people. They both got their heart in the right place, but they have to follow orders. That's who they work for. Um, but they try real hard to, to work the warm water plan. And uh, it, for the most part, it works. It's just only two people is hard to keep up with. And so really, there's two sides to this sword. Oh, right? yeah. We have warm water biologists. I know both of them as well and work with them up here on the, in the northern part of the state. Uh, but I'm assuming you also work with the uh, legislative body. body the I do. People who make the rules. I, and I get involved with that. Uh, it just so happens I'm connected with the uh, Oregon Legislative Sportsman's Caucus. Um, know several of those legislators. Good folks all. Their heart's in the right place. And I think that uh, given ample opportunity, um, we could change a few minds. But the powers that be said, not right now. The, uh, to me, um, I take a lot of those legislators fishing. We always have a great time, you know, and we catch fish, which is their whole focus. Mine is to whisper in their ear about what we'd like to see. Well, I hope that you keep whispering in their ear because um, the more I talk to folks and uh, the more I fish, the frustration level with, with some of the rule changes really gets me. Um, but going back to talking about bass fishing, why are they perceived as evil to other fisheries here in Oregon, Washington, and nowhere else in the United States? Well, I think a lot of it has went right back to the salmon trout and steelhead mentality. And 
I know a lot of those guys. I even fish occasionally for some of those. Um, it's just they are diminishing because of overuse of the waters. Uh, too many anglers fishing for not enough fish. Uh, and because of, of uh, hatcheries and the like, those, are, those fish are readily available for the most part. But there's still too many people fishing for them. With bass, our, our culture requires catch and release. That keeps the fishery moving forward because if you let it go, it'll be there you come back next time. And I think that's a, something that uh, probably needs to be worked on from the other side. That's my opinion, but still, that's what I think. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. Now, as bass anglers, let's talk about warm water anglers, about the people that are out there and their willingness to be good stewards of warm water fishery. Why do you think that those people, us included, you and I, why do you think that we are good stewards of our fishery in general? Well, first of all, <clears throat> there's no such thing as a bass hatchery in Oregon. I know there is a, a small hatchery somewhere up in the hills where they do some, but uh, I think right now they're focused on catfish, uh, channel cats or whatever. So if we catch those fish and throw them in a frying pan or throw them in the trash or whatever, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to reproduce. We occasionally run across a fishery, a bass fishery, um, that is overcrowded and the fish become stunted. We take advantage of that. We go and we catch them and we move them to allowable waters uh, where there more people are able to catch them. We spread them out and it's, it's worked. Uh, Hyatt Lake down in the south had a terrible problem with stunted bass. They were four or six inches long. We, um, over several years, OBBAC called the folks up and said, hey, let's go for a day of catching. No fishing, you're just gonna catch. And uh, over, I think it was seven or eight years, we transferred over 20,000, or excuse me, 12,000 bass out of Hyatt Lake to Lost Creek, um, all the way up to Prineville uh, and some of the, the, the valley lakes. It's just a matter of taking advantage of what's going on. But now uh, those bass are growing pretty well, although we just had a die off a couple of years ago that decimated it again. Um, and more and more people are able to go out fishing and catch a nice bass. Uh, and I will say that as a, as a bass fisherman, and I'm sure you've done the same thing, and I'll ask you about it in just a second, spend a lot of hours helping your fisheries along. Uh, there is a lake over in the central part of the state, Davis Lake. It's a, it's a great lake for raising bass now because it's a, a uh, fly fishing only lake and I believe there's no boats allowed on it uh, or no motor boats. Uh, there's a great bass hatchery, or not hatchery, but a great bass um, uh, habitat there. Uh, our club has helped move bass from there over to Prineville. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some there's some trophy size fish that we have moved in our boats over into that lake. Yep. So how many hours a year? Now I know that you have a lot of hats going on, but how many hours a year do you think you work on your fisheries to to keep them healthy? Well, we also transfer bass out of Davis. We go over with ODFW with everybody's blessing. Um, 
and uh, we take a truck over from, from the Lost Creek Hatchery and we bring back fish and most of them go into Lost Creek. Um, I think our highest number was like 225, but good sized bass, I mean very catchable bass. And we used to put them straight into the water and people would watch us do that, then the next thing you know they're all standing shoulder to shoulder fishing for bass. So what we do now when we go over there is we get a group of bass anglers to come up and we put them in their boats and they put them in their live wells and they go out and spread them around so we don't have that issue anymore. But hours, hours total, gosh, it's got to be in the thousands. Um, I've electrofished there. I've helped with uh, some of the, the, the population studies. Um, I've done, God, I don't know how many spider blocks and how many thousands of willows we've planted and uh, it's almost I've been doing the willow planting now for 17 years every year and generally we go anywhere from 1500 to 3000 willows that we plant um, and they're the local willows sandbar willows um, I went to R&E the restoration enhancement board uh, funding one year and got uh, funding for native sedges that that uh, we put in a um, greenhouse and they raised them. Um, I don't think they took too well, but we've had some really good luck with the willows. Um, there's a whole shoreline over there of, of willows and you go in the summertime and we plant them below full pool uh, level and uh, so they're not out of the water too long or underwater too long. And uh, they when they when they catch, they do real well, and it's great protection for the fish. And that project is working its way up into the Portland area, and now I've been working on uh, spider blocks with ODFW, probably the same two biologists that you work with, yep. um, for about 10 years or so now. It's kind of fun, actually, but they are now talking about willows uh, up here, and we'll see how that goes. I hope that it's, uh, I hope that it's a, a good thing. As part of OBN and other bass organizations, how can these organizations help to be good stewards of the fishery? And what would you suggest to just people listening to this podcast? What should they do? Well, first of all, be mindful that when you catch that bass, the chances of it uh, being good tasting and not propagating uh, is dependent on you. Keep them um, close to the water, unhook them, Get them back in the water. Take your pictures, what we call CPR, catch, photo, and release. Um, but release them as soon as you can. They're a valuable resource, and the only way it's going to last here in Oregon is for us to practice that. And it's a, it's a culture started by BASS way back when by Ray Scott, the founder, and he just got into the catch and release. And I think it's a good thing. And some of the, the, the pros nowadays are are even practicing letting them go right there. I was, I was fortunate enough to be a judge down on Lake Travis two years ago um, and fished with, in the boat with a couple of pros as a judge. And um, You basically take it out, weigh it, uh, measure it, and immediately release it. And it's, it's an interesting way to do things. It's an interesting way to, to fish. And uh, I haven't heard any statistics on survival rates or anything like that, but I'm sure it's quite high as compared to a live well full of fish when you go into the weigh-in. I have uh, taken several newer folks out fishing, and uh, 
boat rules on my boat are, first of all, we don't keep bass. Uh, we keep uh, perch or things like that. But how you handle it. I don't like when people just grab them and lip them and hang them up in the air. You've got to support them. And you do. And one of the things that I ask folks is uh, don't drag them on the carpet. My boat's fully carpeted, and when you drag them on the carpet, it takes the, the slime off, and that exposes the fish to diseases. But um, even if you can unhook them in the water where there's no weight on the lip, uh, that seems to work out real well. You can still lift it, but you put your hand under their belly so that uh, you can get a full, full-blown picture. Of course, um, everybody knows that when you're, when you're taking a picture of your fish, you want to hold the fish closer to the camera than you are, so it looks a little larger, but you know, um, as we have a saying in my world, if you fish, you lie. You know, that's right. And you might as well, and you might as well tell a big one if you're going to tell one. That's right. That's right. Should there be size and retention regulations for black bass in Oregon? I think there should. Um, first of all, it can be a minimal. You know, we have a special regulation in Oregon if you're fishing in a in a tournament. You have a banner that you put around your engine and allows you to have five boats or five fish in the boat um, or ten if there's two anglers. However, um, most people uh, make sure that we, when we, we finish with the weigh-in, they take the fish back out and release them as humanely as they possibly can. Uh, and most people don't even worry about that because about the, the banners. There's a lot of a lot of bass lakes around. Um, the, the one that I fish mostly, which is which is Galesville Reservoir, um, you can only retain one fish total, so we do fly the banners for that. Um, but the idea behind it is just be as careful as you can with the fish, and if you gut hook one and you think it's going to die, retain it. It's you know a lot of people put them back in. They figure well when it when it decays it'll feed other fish, but you are able to retain it if you want. And that's that's always good advice. If if you if you do injure one, you know, and it's not gonna survive, hang on to it. Uh, but if but if they are in good good condition and you've and you've uh, taken care of your catch, release it, put it back. Sure. It'll be there for you to catch again tomorrow. Uh, I heard a story actually in the past month where uh, Two people went fishing on different days. They think they caught the same fish. We compared pictures uh, very closely, and it looks like the same fish. Yeah. So, hard to say. From a perspective of just an average person out fishing every day, how should we be taking care of fish up here in the Northwest? Well, at any point in time, um, first of all, make sure you get a license. And, uh, you know, follow those rules. The bass anglers uh, are purported to have sort of a, a, a bad reputation of transporting live fish to the lake they want to fish in, and that just does not make any sense to me. If you follow the rules, you, you stop uh, trying to transport fish because you like fishing for them. You got to remember, you're not the only one that fishes that water, and we've seen where there's fish been transported. But of course, the top transported fish or illegal transported fish in this state is rainbow trout, believe it or not. And it's because people want to in their lake and or pond or whatever. But uh, at least that was the, the, the case a couple of years ago when we were, we were looking at a study. 
However, you know, the biggest thing is think of yourself as having a hook in your mouth. You'd be happy to have that out of there as quickly as you can. And you don't want to be hanging by your lip. Uh, just be supportive of the fish. Try to treat it humanely. And I'm not saying they feel pain or anything like that. I'm sure they do, but it's in a different sense altogether. Um, it's just try to treat it with a little respect, I think. And it's the same with the fishery. Any fishery, treat it with respect because you want it to last. And sometimes I feel like we're a, a state divided. There are warm water anglers and there are cold water anglers. How do you think we can get along? You know, if you really want to get along with one, talk one on tech and go on fishing with it. Spend a day on the water and you'll find out that we have more in common than we have as, as enemies. Because um, it's all about the same thing. It's about fishing. And yes, there are issues uh, where, they, where they interact, but it's been proven in several places. Davis Lake is a good one, where they have some beautiful trout in there, but they also have some pretty good-sized largemouth. And uh, they can live in the same lake. They don't live on the same level or anything, but they can live in the same lake. And I, there has been a bias built up over the years. There's enough people saying, oh, those cotton-picking bass are something more pejorative than that uh, and people start to believe it so you think that it's just the tribal knowledge as it were that well these fishermen are just not as good then I guess there's some of it you know like we're, we're the Bubba fishermen the, the, the hillbillies out fishing um, but I enjoy my time on the water I really do and it's not about catching the fish It's if you get out there at 6 a.m. and the sun's just coming up and you see that little bit of, of uh, mist on the water and you see the ducks swimming and hear the, hear the noises, how could you possibly deny the existence of God? No, absolutely. I totally agree. I, uh, I so enjoy getting up early in the morning, way before the, the sun has come up, and I'm on the water before that and uh, just, just enjoying what's out there. Yep. Enjoying nature. So it's it's always a good time when I'm out fishing, whether I catch them or not. That's right. One of the things that I always like to ask uh, folks that are on the podcast is, what's the most unusual thing you've ever caught? Gosh, most unusual thing I've ever caught. Well, it probably wouldn't be a, a, a freshwater fish. I think uh, I caught a hammerhead shark when um, I was about 14 years old. And uh, as you might think uh, or might imagine, it was quite a tussle. And I was just absolutely adamant that I wanted to keep that. I didn't want to, I wanted to bring it into the boat. Well, it was my dad's boat, and that wasn't going to happen. And he reached down and cut the line. And I think that's the first time my dad ever heard me cuss. Well, that's, that's a pretty good one. I've, I've heard several good stories. But uh, first of all, hooking a shark. And then I would assume that they have teeth. Oh, and, boy. And they might bite you. Yep. <laughs> so... I, I kind of have to agree with your dad on that one. Yeah, uh, you know, to, to let it go. Of course, at fourteen, it was it was all about me. Well, you know. of course. And so, from a person who buys my fishing license every year, how can we help you to convince Salem in this case to to change some of the rules? Well, it's a it's a continual battle. I. I Battle's probably not the right word. It's been lying fallow for a while since they took the bag limits off of 
off of uh, the three major lakes and or excuse me rivers, uh, the Umpqua, the Columbia, and the John Day. Um, but I've gone back a couple of times and asked them to reconsider and uh, even pointed out some of the good things they were doing, including recycling rubber worms and all that kind of thing. And uh, they kind of be PC with me and say, no, we're not going to do that. Well, we just keep trying. We just keep trying. And uh, I think eventually... Um, the tide will change, and primarily because there's not enough salmon and steelhead to go around. There are bass to go around. Yes, they took the bag limits off of three great rivers for fishing for, for bass. However, um, there is a certain amount of global warming, although I'm not, I don't want to get into that battle. Um, and so smallmouth especially are spreading primarily because the water is warmer and it, it, it uh, accepts their, their temperature ranges. And uh, like I said, I don't want to get into the global warming argument, but um, they just, they propagate just like all the other fish. Well, I, I think you can agree with this. Uh, I hope that anybody who's out there fishing, whether you're, whether you're fishing bass or any other fish out there, I would hope that as a fisherman in general, that you would think about being a good steward of your fishery anytime you're on the water. I totally agree, Don. And totally. And I, I don't, I see people uh, on the river, uh, I go fishing regularly here in the Portland area, I don't keep bass, I put them all back, I see people keeping them, and I keep see them keeping the small ones, and when you try to explain it to them, they think that that's food. Well, it is, but take what you can eat. That's don't, right. Don't take just because you can take a lot of them. So it seems like we're we're on the same page, and I hope that we keep fighting the fight. And I'm not ready to give up yet. Uh, neither am I, actually. So as we're we're kind of wrapping this up. We've been we've been here for a bit. Last words. Well, I think um, that we're still on the right track. Respect the fisheries. We have an unbelievably strong culture of, of bass fishing in this state, a lot stronger than uh, we are perceived. Um, and we all believe in what we're doing, and we believe in our fishery. And I just refuse to give up and say, okay, you win. Well, I appreciate your time. And uh, I know that you're, you're away from home for the weekend, so I really appreciate you getting uh, making some time available for me. And uh, I hope that you pass this uh, podcast along to your friends and to other people who want to hear about why we think that there's a bias against bass, and there really isn't. Yeah, I don't think there is. But there are those who would argue with me, as always. Thanks, Lonnie. You bet. Thank you, Doug. Well, next up on the podcast is Bud Hartman. And many of you know that Bud has been an advocate for warm water fishing for many, many years here in the Northwest. And as we're looking at this question of why are bass perceived as evil in Oregon but not other states, I also wanted to get the perspective of a longtime fisherman. So now here is Bud Hartman. Bud, thanks for joining me today. As you know, this podcast is all about dealing with the bias against bass. And 
as a member of the Warm Water Champions, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Why are warm water fish perceived to be bad in Oregon's other fisheries? Well, Don, I think it's primarily because we've had such a downturn or, or reduction in the numbers of native cold water fisheries here in the state, due to a lot of reasons, we don't have time to go into that now, that the powers that be, in order to convince the public or anybody else that the only way to recover salmon and steelhead, for instance, in our major river systems here, is to eliminate competition and or predation. Now, there's a lot of things that eat those fish, but the warm water fish that we're interested in, the bass and panfish and walleyes and so forth, they're an easy target for these people, the powers that be, to throw rocks at because they have nobody to defend them. So I think that we get the negative perception that we are aliens, so to speak, and we don't belong here. We weren't here more than 100 years ago, and now we are, so we're causing the decline in the cold water fish. That's the perception. Not true, but that's what people believe. Why are these fish perceived to be evil to other fisheries here in Oregon and Washington, but not in the United States? Could be because of the history of cold water fish here in especially the Pacific Northwest, because most of the fish that start or, or, or originate here in the Columbia Basin, with all of its tributaries, do more than just take care of the states of Oregon and Washington. Those fish, when they leave here to, as, as babies to go out to the ocean, to grow up, become adults, they satisfy a lot of need and a lot of other things out in the North Pacific. They go north, they feed whales, there's they go south, there's people to hunt, commercial harvest, a lot of reasons. So they're trying to preserve those fish. We perceive those fish as other people do, as natives. But in the United States as a whole, there are no salmon and steelhead to speak of, except in the greater New England area. There might be some Atlantic salmon up there. But they don't have bass and panfish to contend with in those northeastern waters like we do here. So they're perceived as as enemies because they're they're eating the babies of the salmon and steelhead they're trying to recover. That's the whole perception. I understand. As part of the Warm Water Champions, I know that you guys work a lot with uh, uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. How have you kept those lines open? Over the years, I've been very active with ODFW personnel. I've worked with them for years and years and years, so much so that at times they rely on me to do fish identification for them when they're cleaning out a pond or moving inventories or whatnot because a lot of their biologists are not trained with warm water fish. They're trained with cold water fish and there are so many different varieties of warm water fish that some of our learned biologists, they don't know one from the other. So they asked me to identify them for them. But, but I've worked with the department for years and years and years, and I try to keep the lines of communication open by always telling those people that they're shooting themselves in the foot if they don't recognize the fact that they have a resource available to them that costs the state nothing. They don't require hatcheries. They don't need a lot of things that trout do, for instance. And uh, they take care of themselves. So as a bass angler, let's talk about warm water angling and the willingness to be a good steward to that fishery. 
tell me about some of the things that you've done to help improve that the fishery. Well, my club or our club, this Oregon Bass and Panfish Club that I'm a member of and have been a member since its beginning, 62 years ago, we have created habitat structure. We have uh, improved conditions for the fish and waters where it's suitable. We've done a lot of things where where we've helped the fish with places to propagate, make babies, so forth and so on. So I try to improve those those fisheries, if you will. We have also strived to educate people on how to, when to, where to with these fish and and make it better for other anglers, which we think is beneficial in that the more people we can get fishing for our kind of fish, it removes the pressure off the cold water fish as well. So we're going to have numerous licensed buyers in the state of Oregon. If we can get a bigger percentage of them concentrating on our kind of fish and less pressure on the other kind of fish, maybe the powers to be will back off on saying we're evil guys. Well, that's a, that's a very good statement. Should more recreational anglers be practicing catch and release? Oh, unquestionably. If, if you're a trout fisherman in the state of Oregon, the chances are if you catch a trout and you want to practice conservation by turning it loose, there's a lot of things you have to do to be very, very careful to make sure that fish survives. And to be honest with you, even the biologists and the experts will tell you, 90% or more of the trout that are caught when they're released, they will die. There's what they call delayed mortality. Those fish cannot take the kind of handling that people do when they catch them. Not only a hook stuck in their mouth, but hands squeezing them, holding them, keeping them out of the water too long, etc. is detrimental to the fish. The warm water fish are a little bit more hardy. They can stay out of the water a few seconds longer than a trout. They handle handling better if a person gets a hold of them. And if taught to do it properly by holding a fish by its lip or by the chin and whatnot, we can get people to turn those fish loose so that delayed mortality is greatly reduced and the amount of survival is much higher than it is with the cold water fish. So we try to teach people, since there's no bag limits essentially on these fish, no size limits essentially on these fish, we encourage people to keep only those few that you're going to eat and actually consume, and we would hope that that's not a year's worth of supply, but maybe a meal or two, and turn the rest loose. We like to practice catch and release a great deal. And as we wrap this up, this is the this is the question that uh, that everybody that's been emailing me in and asking me wants me to ask, and so I'll throw it out there to you. Should there be a size? or retention regulation for, ba- for bass in Oregon. Oh, absolutely. Let me, let me go back. If you have time, let me go back a little bit and tell you that in 1958, when we started this club, there were no limits on bass and panfish. The only thing, and I may have told somebody this before, the only thing that had a limit, warm water fish, when I came to Oregon and we started this club, was bullhead catfish, and it had a bag limit of 99 per day per person, period. Everything else was fair game. And myself and a couple other fellows from the beginning of this club went to the Oregon, it was the Game Commission at that time, now it's Fish and Wildlife. But anyway, we went to what was then the Oregon Game Commission, 
and we hammered at, at a public hearing down there trying to get these people to put a bag limit on at least bass. We needed a limit on bass. We thought too many of them were being killed. And we asked them to put a bag limit of 10 per day on. They hemmed and hawed around and asked their own biologists what they thought about it at the same public hearing. And they agreed, the biologists agreed. So the commission threw us a bone and they said, we'll make it 12 per day. So for a couple of years, we had a bag limit of 12 bass per day per person. After a couple of years, the biologists came back to the commission and they said, we have seen the popularity of this sport growing in the state of Oregon. We think they need a little more protection because this is a good resource we got out here. They reduced the bag limit to five, three of which could be over 15 inches. And that was it. That was the, and it had been that way for years and years and years and years and years. Now, all of a sudden, here we are in the year 2020, this many years later from 1958, we've gone back to square one on the river systems anyway. They've taken off the bag limit, taken off the size limits, and we're back to where it's fair game, kill as many as you want to. We think it's dumb. We need bag limits back on those fish. Well, I'd like to thank you for spending this few minutes with me. This will be a part of a bigger uh, podcast with several people, but uh, I hope that people listening to this will practice good stewardship by imposing their own limit on fish. Thanks, bud. Well, I'd like to thank our guests, Carol Dumit, Lonnie Johnson, and Bud Hartman, as we talked about the perception of bass and warm water fishing here in the Northwest. There was an awful lot of information there about how to preserve this fishery. It is very important that we continue to work as good stewards in our fishery to preserve it for many, many years to come. Also, ask yourself the question, how could I be a good steward to the fisheries here in the Northwest? We need to continue as individuals working on the fisheries here in the Northwest to preserve them for generations to come. Now, I understand that uh, Washington State has just made a rule change in the past month or so about bass fishing up in Washington State. Now, here's where the disclaimer comes in. Make sure that you're checking the regulations in any area that you're fishing. And certainly, we have some world-class rivers and reservoirs here in Oregon, southwest Washington, where folks come from all over the United States to fish and enjoy the fishing here in the Northwest. Continue to ask yourself that question, how can I help? If you've enjoyed the podcast, please click the link in the show notes that will take you to Anchor FM and click on the support button. It will help us offset some of the cost. For show ideas and feedback, email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. I'd like to thank everyone, and until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the backcast.